Hello everybody, I'm Jacopo Dettoni, and this is the FDI Podcast. Cryptocurrencies have captivated public attention in the past months, shrugging off a reputation for being just a way to carry out illegal activities in the dark web. But it's now the technology that powers cryptocurrencies, the blockchain, that is taking center stage. The hype surrounding the blockchain has never been bigger, and even the financial and political establishment took blockchain at the World Economic Forum in Davos. The time is now for the blockchain, and developers all over the globe are rushing to design blockchain applications to use encrypted data on anything from money to medical records. But what can be the benefits of the blockchain for cross-border trade and investment? I'm here in our studio in London with Catherine Mulligan, co-director at the Center for Cryptocurrency Research and Engineering at Imperial College London. Catherine, thanks for being on the show. Oh, pleasure. Cathy, let's start from the very beginning. Everybody's talking right now about blockchain, about the blockchain, but I, f- I still feel there is a lot of confusion around. So uh, just to set the tone of the discussion, do you want to uh, dis- dis- tell us what is the blockchain in a nutshell, if possible, and what is the difference between the blockchain and the cryptocurrencies? Sure, fantastic. So, yeah, you're completely right. There is a big difference between a cryptocurrency and a blockchain, actually. So blockchain is the underlying technology. And what a blockchain allows you to do is it creates a ledger, a shared ledger between untrusting parties, if you will, and it allows them to co-create a permanent, unchangeable and transparent record of transaction. And it allows them to do this without relying on a central authority. And that's why it's become so popular within things like cryptocurrencies, because what it allows you to do is effectively remove the intermediary of the central bank. So that's why. So the the difference is, you know, blockchain can be used in a multitude of different applications. And a cryptocurrency is very much about the exchange of value and um, money, if you will. So definitely a characteristic of, of the blockchain, of any blockchain application can trace back to uh, the, the opportunity of developing a trusted uh, set of data, an accessible set of data, at least for the, for the stakeholders participating in the platform. Uh, data can, that can be quality data, as long as uh, the, the providers of the data stick to some principles. And definitely also the security of the platform and the fact that it is a decentralized uh, platform, right? Yeah, exactly. You can think of it as a way to create consensus between people who others otherwise wouldn't be able to do so. Right. So so where do you see opportunities for blockchain applications in cross-border investment and trade? Well, I think there's a, a lot of different ways we can view that, actually. So for me, I think there's a big opportunity for blockchain applications and the use of it for customs and uh, streamlining streamlining customs uh, interactions between nations. So where there's a border, you can track and trace much more quickly. Um, and you can see countries like Singapore, for example, are investigating those kind of activities. I think blockchain in that sense as well would enable us to create regions um, you know, countries who are not necessarily within the same border could create regions, trade regions for themselves using this technology. Within uh, cryptocurrencies, I think we're seeing a lot of activity. So we're seeing a lot of smaller countries like Japan, for example, um, basically regulated for um cryptocurrencies and we saw quite a huge influx of uh, companies into the country at that particular point in time because they were very actively trying to work out how to build value from these type of um, cryptocurrencies yeah so i think there is an opportunity to uh, attract investment and trade Uh, and of course uh, in terms of um, just 
countries which are able to um, build blockchain applications are going to see a lot more investment over the coming years, I think. Right. Before getting there, I think that one of the one of the reasons why of the of the the current hype surrounding the blockchain is also the involvement of major uh, global corporations in the development of uh, blockchain applications and platforms. And definitely within this space, one of them is uh, IBM. IBM is uh, is taking is definitely taking a lead as a provider for uh, uh, the blockchain technologies and is teaming up with a number of different industrial partners uh, to test uh, to, 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 to test these uh, technologies across the board. And I met in London with Jason Kelly, who is the head of uh, IBM Global Blockchain Services, and this is what he told me. When you think about the vision forward for blockchain, when you have something that's, that's more than a, just a technology, it's a capability, uh, something that's unlocking two for years, which are uh, both access to data, and then once you have that data, it's quality data. Uh, something that I, I say often that when you have those two things, now businesses can transact at a, a, a much faster rate with a higher uh, sense of, of certainty. So that's the this thought of a trust economy because now it can be trusted. So once you have that, you know, where's where's the limit? Uh, if you can now open deeper than a supply chain, where there's no longer the lag in between each step in that value chain from production all the way out to the consumer, where permissioned parties can now see that an invoice has been paid, that a shipment has been delivered, that this product is in fact, has the authenticity that, that you want for that product or service. With that being unlocked, you say, wow, that, that takes this value chain to a new level. So IBM believes that uh, the blockchain can take a, a business value chains uh, to whole new level, to use the phrasing of uh, Mr. Kelly. Um, and to make it happen, actually, they are teaming up, again, as I mentioned, with a number of major industrial partners. They, uh, they are doing a joint venture with uh, Maersk, a global shipping uh, a company, to improve the, 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 the bureaucracy uh, surrounding uh, global trade. As you mentioned also before, probably like uh, customs, custom clearance and custom procedures that have historically have a name, had a name for being very, very uh, time consuming and definitely inefficient and vulnerable to a lot of corruption. Uh, but also, uh, they are also teaming up, partnering with Walmart, for example, to create a safer uh, food supply. And they uh, are also uh, launching a couple of initiatives with the European banks and Indian conglomerate Mahindra uh, to explore the potential of, block of the blockchain in the space of trade finance and supply chain finance. So here again, Jason Kelly on the potential of the blockchain as a catalyst for the development of uh, digital business ecosystems. Blockchain itself is just blockchain, but the capability that it brings is even more exciting because it does serve as a catalyst for this elusive thing that we call digital reinvention. Because if you can set up that platform, and as you convene these, these players within the ecosystem, now what you've done is brought together a, a capability to say, well, this thing that was elusive now is real because you can bring in digital reinvention by way of advanced analytics, 
cognitive through a, 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 a capable cloud secure platform that then seeds additional change to innovate, to create new value and give new access to new participants. So Kathy, do you see the blockchain as being uh, really capable of driving a digital reinvention? Yeah, so I think um, there's a couple of different uh, ways we can think about that. So, for example, if we think about uh, traditional technologies that we've had since the 1960s, they've been about doing the same business processes faster, more securely, and, uh, you know, with higher throughput. What you get with blockchain is an opportunity to completely redefine how business processes are being done. Does that lend us towards a digital reinvention? Quite possibly it does. But it also brings with it um, a new set of issues and problems that we need to think through and overcome. So if you would like to have a supply chain, uh, blockchain, for example, you have to get all of the parties who are members of that supply chain to agree exactly. and uh, to negotiate what that blockchain is going to look like before you can even set it up. And I think another really interesting point that um, IBM was making there is they're talking about permission blockchains, which brings us to another point, which is there are lots of different types of blockchain. So the blockchain for Bitcoin is permissionless. So anyone can read, anyone can write, and anyone can become a member of that node or a node on that network. Whereas what um, IBM is talking about is a permission blockchain, which is really useful for enterprise situations. So you know, only permissioned people can read that blockchain. Right. Uh, so those kind of solutions are really useful for, um, you know, enterprises and supply chains and those sort of things where you do still need a strong boundary of permission uh, access to the data. And I would say that they also need uh, strong principles to agree on. I mean, uh, it, it's not enough that all the stakeholders participate in the blockchain, but everybody has to be committed uh, to share their uh, their specific amount of data and everybody has to be committed that that data has to be reliable, right? Yeah, exactly. So in some of the uh, proofs of concept we've done in the center, we've had some really interesting discussions, for example, around insurance, where the first thing that happens is all of the lawyers come into the room to negotiate uh, the data sharing agreements because, you know, that's a critical part of it. So right. who, who has risk? Who holds the risk? Those kind of things need to be rethought through when you're doing, doing a blockchain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, another very interesting development uh, uh, regards more specifically cryptocurrencies and initial coin offerings and countries that are trying to to become a, a reference in this specific segment of uh, the blockchain and cryptocurrencies um it's very interesting because you mentioned the case of japan before um but there are other countries that are also trying to again to to replicate the experience of japan and become a uh, a center for ICOs, mm -hmm. smaller countries, and maybe countries that in the past used to have a, a much less, well, they, they still have much less access to traditional financial markets. So for them, it's more difficult to raise capital through normal uh, IPOs. Uh, but ICOs, initial coin offerings, maybe give them uh, an extra opportunity to raise capital through uh, untraditional uh, sources and I specifically referring for example to Eastern Europe, Baltic countries like Lithuania and Estonia are definitely taking a lead there in the European Union space but also uh, countries outside the European Union like Switzerland there is an initiative in Switzerland called the Crypto Valley um, Gibraltar they are about to launch their uh, ICO market called uh, uh, re renamed the Crypto Harbor 
Um, talking about this, I, I met with Antonas Guga, who is also better known as Tony G. Antonas is a, is a poker legend from Lithuania, but he's also a blockchain entrepreneur. But even more interesting, he's also a member of uh, the European Parliament. So he's got a very good uh, perspective there because he is an entrepreneur in the blockchain space, uh, but he's also a legislator at the same time at the European Union level. And this is what he told me. Now this has been a revolution. You know, there's been so much money raised uh, by, by people in Lithuania, in Estonia, all over Europe, Slovenia, and it's fantastic. I mean, these countries that didn't have access to capital markets and they, no, they never had strong stock exchange, they don't have VCs, very low liquidity. Now, by having a decentralized environment, they're raising a lot of money. The question is, 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 is it a security, is it legal? So, yeah, we need to have good regulation on this to allow them to, to do these things, but not, not, not to stop them, to encourage them, but also to give a little bit of protection or as much protection as we can to the investors. And, and, and this money flows basically from a lot of money flow from China and from Asia into Europe to provide the blood that we need, the capital that we need to, to, to build great projects. And from some of these projects, you'll have unicorns, you'll have very successful huge projects, which you know, we need to dream about building companies as big as Google in Europe. This is what we must do, and this is a way that gives us a chance. So we can't stop this. We don't want to stop this. This, this is an opportunity for us. So a big opportunity for a number of European Union countries, for small and European Union financial, traditional financial markets, but also a challenge for uh, European Union legislators. Cathy, what do you make of all this? Well, I think that the ICO space is a, a super fascinating thing to, to look at, and it's really quite exciting. I think there are a number of... Um, uh issues that have obviously been raised already around the, the, the role of regulation. So is an ICO a security? And we can see that the SEC in the United States is making quite a lot of, uh, or it's been rattling its cage, well, shall we say, uh, over this last year. And it's actually launched a few uh, cases against um, what they consider to be fraudulent ICOs. Uh, I guess the other issue about that is there is precedent where the SEC has... Um, sued overseas. So even if, uh, you know, Switzerland or Gibraltar were to set up these ICOs, they still have to conform with um, security law if they're selling to US citizens. Right. So that's a really interesting thing that I think um, you can see in cryptocurrencies. They're effectively international currencies. It's yeah. a borderless currency. Bitcoin doesn't have a, a national boundary to, to hold it. Um, and that's where uh, we're going to have to see a lot more interaction between governments. So, you know, more governments are going to have to understand how to regulate these. They're going to have to understand how to regulate them together. Uh, a very interesting, you know, problem in that space is there is no universal definition of money. So how do you define a cryptocurrency, actually? So it's a really fascinating time. I think, however, the, the, the idea about using it, uh, ICOs, as a means to sort of create the next unicorn or the next Google uh, in Europe is a really fascinating one. Because I think what an ICO does in Europe is it allows you to get around what are really quite archaic innovation programs. Uh, for example, if you traditionally start up a company in the EU, you have to go to the EU sort of H2020 funding or the SME programs that they have. And the decision-making processes behind those are really quite slow. They're a bit clunky. Mm -hmm. You don't really know who's making the decision. Um, and it's not 
that that dissimilar in the UK actually. Uh, so you know you've got Innovate UK or different sort of funding agencies not picking on anyone in particular but right, it's right, right. very very there is a lot of bureaucracy and uh, it's time consuming procedures uh, Ex- behind that yeah exactly and it's very low um <laughs> probability of success as right. well so uh, you know in a sense the icos can be used to sort of help overcome that because what an ico is effectively doing is putting an idea out there and saying what do people actually really think of this so it's a great way i think for Um, people to vote but of course then we do have the issue around consumer protection because these these currencies are not protected under law actually uh, last year uh, ICOs uh, all over the globe raised more than 3.4 billion dollars so it's already it's not in the financial space it's not a huge sum but it's already a very tangible reality out there and uh, even more importantly this is an almost completely unregulated market still exactly so it's uh, it's something that legislator uh, must be looking uh, must be looking at uh, increasingly and even even more so as as uh, the, the whole phenomenon develops this year uh, telegram the, the the messaging app uh, plans to raise uh, two billion dollars also in uh, in uh, in nico so definitely is, is a space that uh, will attract more and more we draw more and more attention from uh, legislators and it will be interesting to see how the debate unfolds, whereas uh, the, the, the side of uh, a better and now regulated market, better no regulation at all to keep it the market, to keep the market flexible and to give it to keep it to keep it with the characteristic that you were mentioning or or whether the other side uh, side more more hawkish on a regulation would uh, would eventually uh, prevail but actually it's interesting to see this debate unfolding within the European Union because again as I mentioned before there are countries like Lithuania and Estonia and Slovenia that are taking the lead in the development of this uh, the blockchain space and cryptocurrencies and they had uh, a sort of a mild uh, uh, coldish response from European Union uh, authorities for example Estonia uh, proposed at some point uh, to launch a government back uh, cryptocurrency called the S-Coin and uh, this uh, this proposal uh, prompted the response of uh, the European uh, uh, the, the European uh, Central Bank governor himself Mario Draghi who said basically in, in, in other words said that, that this is not going to happen that the European Union uh, currency is the euro and uh, everybody will continue using euro instead of other cryptocurrencies um, and I spoke about this uh, to David Anderson David is a co-founder of uh, Sweetbridge a, block, a blockchain based solution for supply chain finance and I think uh, he has got an interesting point of how a uh, smaller uh, jurisdiction outside the European Union space can actually gain a, an edge here and this is what he told me um, I think that uh, the advantage of the smaller jurisdictions and, and let's take an example of uh, the canton of Zug, uh, Gibraltar, um, Liechtenstein, uh, you know, amongst, t- t- to name a few, um, they're more or less free to set their own regulation um, and financial rules, um, you know, around listing, uh, exchanges, transfer, blockchain. Um, so, so there is an opportunity for the United Kingdom perhaps tumbling out of the European Union with Brexit to have more more freedom. Um, and we, we see various members of the EU trying to do things and being told to get back in their box, effectively. Um, so, so there's innovation happening very 
quickly in, in Estonia in, and Lithuania members. Um, you can also see the US uh, being hands being tied by the fact that there are different laws governing the exchange of money in the 50 different states. Different licenses required for each one. So, you know, when is that all going to be changed? Well, as it stands this morning, I think the government's back in action, but they, they were out of action yesterday. So I don't think that's on the top of their list to get through. Uh, they're not going to make the 50 states law uniform, and you're battling with that every time you want to change unless they can change that. The UK has a chance being an enormous financial centre to attract investment um, if, it, if it shows some innovation. Um, and the model I would follow would be the efforts made by Gibraltar, who are churning out a huge amount of legislation, requirements, uh, and, and embracing the blockchain and saying, here we are, we're open for business, come, come and do this here. Um, Britain's, I don't know, 100, 1,000 times larger uh, as a financial centre, and you know, it has a great opportunity to, to make something out of it. So, yeah, Cathy, do you think that the UK has got an opportunity here to take a lead in the, the cryptocurrency ICO space? Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, the the very fact that it is one of the world's largest financial centres does give it that, um, you know, very strong base to build from. Also, uh, London, for example, has been working and creating uh, more around the fintech as well, the sort of technology. So they're, they're quite advanced in this space. It's certainly not... Um, uh, unheard of but i guess in in the same way um that the united states government is currently trying to get itself out of a shutdown uh you know brexit is overtaking everybody's conversation right. in the government um and i think it's a fantastic uh idea that we could use brexit as an opportunity to do that but i think we've got other things to uh, to worry about <laughs> so probably we will see this center gibraltar and uh, the crypto valley in switzerland uh, being uh, uh, more probably more successful in that, and not, not exclusively like in Europe. There are also other countries. For example, an interesting case is Belarus. Belarus is also trying uh, to open up its uh, its a digital space to blockchain uh, startups, uh, ICOs. Um, Russia is sort of taking a similar attitude towards like uh, towards uh, cryptocurrency mining. Uh, but also the blockchain. So it's interesting how there are different countries in different jurisdictions, different regions that are trying to uh, push for, uh, yeah, are trying to open up uh, to, 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 to open up to, to, to capital interested in uh, these developments. Whereas on the other hand, there are other countries like China, for example, cracking down on ICOs and uh, cryptocurrency mining. South Korea, another big market that used to be another big market for cryptocurrencies, cracking down on uh, cryptocurrency exchanges. So it's there is a lot of development there and a conflicting development there. Yeah, and I think the thing that's really interesting is how some of these governments are seesawing. So um, originally, you know, Putin released that he wanted to cr crack down on all cryptocurrencies. Right. Now he wants to uh, attract ICO investment. Uh, what we see is, you know, China uh, actually at the beginning, I think it was January of t 2017, uh, they an announced that they were looking at uh, putting the renminbi onto a cryptocurrency hmm. um, base. So uh, I think it's really fascinating that the, there's this fluctuation and it does show um, that, you know, that regular regulatory uh, uncertainty is actually really 
really difficult for companies to deal with as well. So I think that those countries that are able to give a robust and stable regulatory environment, so companies know how much tax they're going to pay, how they're going to be treated, all of these kind of you know usual things, will be the the country that actually um, sort of attracts the most investment first. I think with regards to things like Estcoin and also I think the you know Riksbank and uh, the, the Swedish uh, central bank is also Correct, thinking yeah. about. Um, looking at using cryptocurrencies. I think that many of those things are really sort of uh, more in the research stage. And the, yeah. the reason for that is obviously its impact on macroeconomic policy. So are you a deflationary economy or an inflationary economy? I mean, those are questions that have to be re-asked if you look at free app-based uh, cryptocurrencies. Uh, so I think that's it's a really exciting time um, for that. But I think, you know, these trials, I think it would be nice to see some trials around a fiat-backed um, cryptocurrency. So I think, you know, could they do a proof of concept in Estonia? That would be quite nice to see. Right, right. right. <laughs> um, I think that in this in this, in this this space is also very interesting uh, the development of, blo- of uh, cryptocurrencies as a way to hedge uh, uh, foreign, foreign exchange uh, risks. And uh, this is pretty evident in uh, countries that have uh, historically suffered from uh, very erratic uh, foreign exchange rates. Uh, Zimbabwe, obviously, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an example that uh, many people often mention, and it's also very uh, actual given the recent developments in the country. And it, it's actually interesting to see how bitcoins and Ethereum. Uh, are traded at a, at a substantial premium in a country like Zimbabwe because many people are shifting their savings from have shifted and are shifting their savings from a, a foreign currency uh, into which is very scarce nowadays in, in Zimbabwe into bitcoins or ethereum and this is happening not just in zimbabwe in other countries so again this is as you were mentioning before this is these are a borderless uh, currencies or borderless assets, uh, largely unregulated, and so and definitely independent from any uh, political, uh, political entity, political influence, as far as we know, as far as they were uh, engineered. Mm-hmm. Um, so, do you see potentially also the uh, bitcoins, other cryptocurrency becoming? Uh, a safe haven for savers, but also for investors to edge against uh, uh, forex risks in uh, developing countries, but also developed countries with uh, for particular foreign risks, foreign exchange risks. Um, yeah, I mean, when I speak to people who invest in sort of in Bitcoin and Ethereum and those kind of things over the last few years, um, a lot of people became much more interested in Bitcoin after the Brexit. Uh, vote mainly because of uncertainty. So they're starting to view uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum as a more certain bet than potentially the sterling, which is a a very, very interesting um, uh, thing to watch. Um, And also, I think that, uh, you know, uh, well, the United States uh, government is probably not um, helping stability either. So, you know, yes, I think a little bit of that is, uh, is the case, definitely. And obviously, I guess that uh, this argument is stronger now after the huge rally of uh, the Bitcoin and Ethereum and the, the, with, the, with their uh, valuation spiking up in the, in the in the currency markets. But maybe it wouldn't be it wouldn't be the same uh, in a year's time if the, the their market value plummeted, right? 
Yeah, so I think I think it's been really great. Over the last couple of months, we've seen what is, can only be described as the greatest wealth creation uh, mechanism, right. uh, it, probably at least for the last thirty years. Let's let's face it, right? Uh, and we could also see the the greatest wealth. Uh, decrease. <laughs> so these currencies, they, they are independent from uh, political influence and uh, from central bank decisions, but still, uh, they are very uh, immature, say, early stage markets, liquidity is, is not really there, it's not as big as in normal currency markets that are the most liquid assets out there, and so fluctuations and volatility can still be huge, a huge factor to, to take into account. Exactly, and you know, all right. Well, Kathy, to to wrap up, I I, I got the statistic that I think that is very uh, symbolic for what we are experiencing, what we are seeing in the blockchain uh, and cryptocurrency uh, world universe. Um, last year, uh, according to estimates by consultancy company Deloitte, there were as many as twenty six thousand new projects initiated. In the in the blockchain uh, space or involving the development of blockchain technology, uh, and I was talking to one of the speakers at the blockchain uh, London Week uh, uh, here in London on January 24th, a few days ago, and he told me that uh, this we are going through the crypto winter. This is how he phrased it, and I imagine that uh, if I met him uh, in a two months time, he would tell me, "Oh, this is the crypto spring, and then there will be the the, the crypto summer and the crypto autumn." However, the level of success of these initiatives, of these 26,000 new projects, has been uh, relatively small. So only 8% today, after a few months of these initiatives, are still active. So I wanted to ask you to wrap up. If we look forward, where do you see the defining moment for these initiatives to become more successful? And where do you see the blockchain in five years' time? Yeah, so I think uh, in order, the tipping point for me will be where we see this uh, move, a blockchain solution move beyond a proof of concept. What we have today is a lot of proof of concepts, and that's what the 26,000 are. Um, when I hear that, you know, let's say a very large corporation um, or set of corporations has decided to put their uh, data exchanges onto the, the blockchain and then moving away from their legacy systems. That for me is the tipping point. That is when we've, you know, we're starting to move in towards a new data management era. Um, with regards to uh, where it will be in the next five years, I think it's going to be a, a fascinating journey. I think we'll have seen a lot more volatility in the prices of cryptocurrencies. And I think we'll start to see people potentially trying to use the currencies within industry structures. So I think you could see for example, I don't know, some kind of insurance coin or some kind of, uh, you know, um, I don't know, any kind of industry coin, uh, rather than an actual national currency coin. So I think that international industries could have a lot of value delivered to them by um, a, a coin which is unique to their industry. Right. So, for example, a travel coin. Yeah. You could actually remove a lot of fluctuations, again, around the um, exchanges, exchange of uh, foreign currencies. If you could remove that um, uncertainty from their supply chain, they could actually save a lot of money. So I think those kind of things are what we'll see in the next five years. 
All right. Well, Kathy, thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, tell us how can listeners access uh, the research that you guys are doing at the Center for Cryptocurrency Research and Engineering? Um, I think the easiest way is just to look on uh, the Imperial College homepage or Google us and you can uh, find us quite quickly. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks again. Uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, you can all find uh, our podcast on our website, uh, fdiintelligence.com slash podcast and on any other major podcast platforms like iTunes or Acast. Thanks again. Stay tuned. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.